Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest, David Hensel, who is the CEO of Upcoach and a serial entrepreneur. David, welcome. Thank you for having me on the show, Marcus. Would you mind running through your career history in 60 to 90 seconds and talk about the other businesses that you're involved in as well? And we'll explore those in some Sure. I'm originally from Germany, always been an entrepreneur, had a variety of businesses in Germany, but was always drawn to the US because there was the startup scene that I felt I was missing out on because back then Germany in the uh, you know early 2000s, there was not much going on. So I sold my e-commerce business that I had back then, which gave me the money to get my investor visa to move to the United States. Moved to Los Angeles, co-founded MaxCDN, the content delivery network, which we sold a few years ago, had a really nice exit. And then we moved back to, my wife wanted to move back to Germany um, to be close to family. I could not go back to German weather for the life of me. I had to, you know, had to stay in, uh, you know, in warm climate after eight years of Southern California. So we moved to the south of Turkey. We're in Bodrum here. It's really nice. Very happy here. And I got really bored and started a business and then I bought another business and then invested into another and kind of it accumulated. So now I have a bunch of businesses. One is Task Drive. We do lead research for SDRs and you know, just kind of like free up sales teams. LTV Plus, which is a outsourcing service for e-commerce and SaaS businesses, tech support, live chat, etc. So um, like a BPO, modern BPO. Shortlist.io, which is a, a marketing company, online marketing company. Then Speak on Podcasts is a company that books people on podcasts. And my passion project is managing happiness, where I help people to figure out how to figure out their mission, vision, and core values, and their habits that they need to achieve their goals. And this is also how UpCoach was born. It initially had a course that people just watched online by themselves. And uh, I only had a 7% completion rate, which drove me nuts because it was my passion project. And I want you know people to have the change that they're looking for and not just give me money. Uh, and so I thought, how can I do this better? And I started group coaching the same content and this worked really, really well. We have a 94% completion rate to date. Then, you know, but it was cumbersome. I could not find a good software to facilitate this group coaching. And so I started building one. Then I showed this to a friend of mine. Uh, he's a well-known coach in the United States. His name is Todd Herman. He wrote the alter ego effect. And I showed him the software and said, like, hey, man, I've built this thing. Could you give me some feedback? And he said, this looks amazing. I want to invest. I want to be part of this. Let's make this big. And so, but boom, I had another business, which I'm focusing the most of my time on, which is UpCoach because it's very close to my personal mission, which is being a change agent who is impacting or changing the lives of organizations and individuals so they can reach their full potential. And with the software, I can just amplify this by having thousands of coaches using this, impacting millions of people, ideally. So... I have to say, I've seen UpCoach and I really like it. It's very clean, very simple, very easy to use. So uh, let's talk about coaching because it's a, a fact, uh, an issue near and dear to both of our hearts. First question is, why is it so few managers spend their time coaching when it would free up time and it would overcome the excuse of I don't have any time to coach? Ideally, you coach your people. Ideally, you grow your people. For me, this gives me a lot of, personal gratification when I can help people to to grow and overcome hurdles and you know uh, ideally I don't want to do 
the work myself. I think the best manager always manages himself out of a job by teaching, training, coaching people that they, you know, that they do an amazing job. I think maybe some people are holding back because they're scared of hiring somebody who's better than them or, you know, they don't want to, they always want to get the, the praise themselves and not share this with other people. I think it's probably like, I think why, why people are holding back out of fear, most likely, I think. Okay. I mean, in my experience, um, great managers hire well, get the best out of their people and make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work, help mm -hmm. clear the path, roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from above. And they manage inclusively and um, they, they give people a voice. And coaching is a fabulous opportunity for uh, people to share their voice and uh, to be heard. And what we know is that organizations that have highly engaged employees have 430% on average higher profit per employee. So coaching by all measures done well delivers great results. What makes for a great coach? I think being em empathetic and really caring about the other person's success and kind of always almost putting the other person's goals and wants in front of your own personal desires because you know when once people really understand that you have their best intentions at heart then you can actually coach them you know i always drill this into people that, that report directly to me that you know when i criticize them i'm not criticizing them because I have, i'm having a bad day or whatever i criticize them because i want them to be a rock star and i want them to grow i usually have to say this like two or three times until it kind of sinks in that they do not argue back or you know, try to find excuses why they haven't done X, Y, Z, you know, and once we're at, at this level, then it becomes very frictionless. I can just, you know, I don't have to use the the management bullshit sandwich for like, okay, you're doing amazing here and like, oh, this sucks and you, you're amazing there, you know, you can just like be very efficient. Um, but yeah, people have to see that you actually care for their interests and not just with words, but also with, with deeds and actions. And I think that's, yeah. Certainly. One of the things that I found very valuable from my time in Sandler has been the separation of identity versus role. And as a coach, we focus on role performance and protecting the identity. Identity is who you are. Role is what you do. And you can't fail with identity, but you can fail in role. And failure is universal. It's part of the human condition. Frankly, it's unavoidable to some degree. And we learn from our failures, or we should. And so certainly from the coaching experience that I've had, that emphasis on the separation of between uh, role and identity is very key. But also one of my pals, Bill Bartlett, has the three Ps model, which is protection, potency, and permission in coaching. So the person being coached has permission to say what they need without any fear of retribution and that they have equal business stature in that conversation because both views are valid. And it is my job as the coach to help them, and it's their job to improve. And more often than not, as a coach, I find I learn enormous amounts from the people that I'm coaching. So talk to me about the kind of value that you as a coach have derived from the experience of coaching. I mean, just what you said, we learn from our mistakes and just like for the business... In my businesses, we always have an error log. And in the error log, we log the errors that happen, you know, and uh, it's, you can't get in trouble for having, you know, committing a mistake, but you can get in real trouble for not adding it to the error log. And this error log is, you know, filled up and we have our, our manager meeting um, once, once a week. 
And in this manager meeting, we go through the error log and then we see which processes do we have to improve or what can we do to make sure that this uh, will not happen again. And, you know, this is how we are like kind of almost like a self-healing system that kind of always addresses stuff that's coming up, you know. Errors are a good thing. You know, I, I like having errors because this gives me an opportunity to improve things. And every bad thing that happens, there's a lot of good stuff because now we can, you know, fix it for the future. Extreme example, we got hacked at MaxCDN and, you know, it was quite traumatic for everybody. But, you know, we, we learned a lot and we built a lot of features Due to this hack attack, we built a lot of security features that none of our other competitors had, which made it impossible for this thing to occur, occur again. And we won a lot of customers because of this. You know, so it's like it's always, yeah, always welcome problems because they always bear a lot of blessing in, inside of them as well. Just you can't have the same problems over and over. Then you're doing something wrong. But new problems are always a good thing. Uh, absolutely, every uh, gray cloud has a wonderful silver lining. And I think one of the problems that I see very often is people can be quite brittle in terms of their ego and they see criticism or they see role failure as a personality defect. How do you neutralize that belief? As you mentioned before, like not addressing them personally, but like the role that they have. And uh, also in terms of how you address something, my mother always said, be hard in the case, but soft with the person. If somebody's like late all the time, then I would like pull this person apart. So like, hey man, you can't be late because of X, Y, Z reasons. If you continue doing this, I will have to let you go. You know, there will not be, I will not yell at them. I will be not upset. I'll just like be very clear and um, see also if I can help them to fix the issue. Um, but yeah, you know, so I think like kind of how you communicate with people makes a big difference. You've touched on another really important point. Uh, ambiguity is the mother of all fuck-ups, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> if you have ambiguity at the top, it leads to confusion and politics at the bottom. So when you're training your managers, how do you train them to communicate with clarity? One thing we do is we're, I'm a total vision, mission, and core values nerd. I think it's like the most essential thing for business. I always, before, when I, was, when I didn't have gray hair, I thought that that's like something you use in a presentation for for an investor and then you bury it on your website and never use it again. But I didn't realize that's actually the best management tool there is, you know, and ideally you explain everything, every decision you make, you explain with using the vision mission as a filter or like the core values as an explanation. One example is a friend of mine started Ring.com, a founder of Ring.com, the, the dollar company. And uh, I was chatting with his head of engineering about vision, mission, and values. And he said, one of the engineers came to him and said, like, hey, we have this, this floodlight that you put on the side of the house. And, and, you know, when somebody walks past, the floodlight goes on. You see this person on the screen. You can say, like, what are you doing here? Please leave my property or call the police. And this engineer thought, okay, we can turn, we can build the best thing ever. We can build the party mode. So if you turn on party mode, the microphone there will listen to the music and the lights will flash with the music, you know. For whatever reason, he thought that's an amazing idea. And you could tell this person, like, no, that's stupid. Go back at your desk and do your work. But this person would be crushed and would probably never come up with something again. But he said, okay, that's cool. But what does this have to do with our mission, which is to make neighborhoods safer? Nothing. So we're not going to do it. You know, so what we do is I, I really make sure that all our managers understand our mission, vision, and values. And everybody that we hire, we run them through once a month, we run them through a presentation that shows them our mission, vision, and values and our goals and kind of our, our background story. And um, then we tell some core value stories on how people have 
displayed the core values that we want to live up to in, in our business. So everybody knows that, that they can, that they have permission to even challenge the, the upper leadership if we're not if we're doing things that are not in line with our core values, you know, so that's to really drive this home. And I think that's like half of the battle if this is understood in your team. So the, what, what you're describing there is that the root of culture and the root word of culture is cult. What we do is we raise onto a pedestal the people who espouse and express the values that we hold dear. And we recognize those people for being great examples. You know, we aspire to that. But a lot of people really struggle in order to define their vision in a way that is clear. They struggle to define their mission. Do you mind spending a little bit of time explaining how you go about doing that? in order to help others. Sure. Uh, I think it's also really important. This is why I have my Managing Happiness program under managinghappiness.com, which is group coaching to help people to figure out their personal mission and vision. And one exercise from Seven Habits of Highly Effective People from this book is the funeral exercise. You basically imagine your funeral and you're like, you know, you're in the casket and, you know, your loved ones or whoever gives a eulogy you know a speech about your life and what would make you the most proud what make you happy if you know people say this about you and then you can kind of like work backwards in terms of what you have to accomplish to be fulfilled you know kind of reverse engineer it so i think that's an important thing to figure out what you really want and then with your business ideally do something that's in line with what makes you personally happy then you're going to have way more grit way more power power to plow through the, the tough tough times in business and in terms of your, your, the mission of your company is kind of figure out like, who do you want to help? Like, what's the ideal person that you, which, which problem do you want to solve? Basically kind of like, you know, and, and ideally find something that has a little meaning, um, you know, especially with the millennials these days, it's very easy to recruit people based on the mission and vision of your, of your company, you know, because everybody wants to have a positive impact these days. And it's not only about increasing shareholders' value anymore. Do you see a difference between millennial and Gen Z founders and owners and uh, slightly more long in the tooth, older, fusty ones, my generation? You know, there's this book called Conscious Capitalism by John Mackey, the, the founder of Whole Foods. And he describes the old way of doing business is we have to increase shareholders' value. That's the only thing that matters for a business. And the new way is like we have to do good by all stakeholders of the business, by employees, by vendors, by suppliers, by customers, the planet, etc. And so if you have one a business that is conscious, these businesses will thrive more and make more profit. And you know, these days people vote with their wallets. It's the only I think it's the only way how you can actually vote these days, because I don't want to get into politics, but this is like the, the main power that you have to vote with your money to support companies that are in line with, with what you believe. And so I think this, yeah, this is the big difference between the newer generations, not necessarily only millennials, but like younger people, are, I think, are more aware or following this zeitgeist. So it's interesting how that whole ethos is part of the recruitment process. Because certainly throughout most of my career, that's never really played a part. But I'm seeing it happen more and more. So in the recruitment process, at what point are you introducing vision and mission to a candidate? Pretty early on in the, uh, in the, in the, in the first conversation, we kind of make, make this clear to people. We also have people sign 
On the contract, the last page is a list of our core values. They have the initial next to each core value and then sign below. Like if I'm not living up to this, um, there's not a place for me, you know, to kind of really drive this home. people. So they're very early on introduced to our cult here. And uh, at, at, Max, at Max CDN, we had a core value, uh, which was build cool shit, you know, kind of written a little bit different with the dollar sign and blah, because we, um, A, we wanted to, we were a very engineering focused company. So we want to attract people who want to build cool shit. But we also want to repel people who want to come to work with a suit and tie on because this was just not the culture that we had at this business. And, you know, it's an, it's an early filter. So people self-select out, like if they really fit or not, you know, we once hired somebody from who, who was like on paper, the ideal recruit for, for, for the job. He came, he was, he built the CDN for Yahoo. So he's like the perfect CTO of us, but he came in from this giant company, Yahoo, to this like tiny, crazy, unorganized startup. You know, we just like the world's clashed, you know, it's like, you know, kind of, there's this thing with, uh, do you know this, when you, there are three phases of, of a business, you know, first you need guerrilla fighters, you know, you just kind of drop them off somewhere on the patch of land and give them like rough directions and they kind of figure it out. This is the people you need in the early days of a startup. And then once you're a little bigger, it's military. So it's still war, but you kind of have to, if you shoot somebody, you have to kind of report to the, the person above you. And then once it's it's even bigger, then you're like almost like a giant tanker. Uh, you, you're like police. You cannot think outside the box anymore. You just kind of follow strict rules. You know, the bigger the business becomes, first you're a little speedboat and now at some point you're, you're a big tanker. And it's all something you should screen for when you, when you, when you're growing your business, kind of at which stage are you? What kind of people do you need right now? So let's look at the pre-onboarding phase. So you've offered them the job. What are you doing in order to ensure that they're aligning with those values and mission? It's just like in conversations, like how do they behave in, in certain situations? And, you know, you kind of also get a, when you tell mission, vision and value, like core value stories, et cetera, how we, how we acted. I think people will either be attracted to this or they will be repelled by this, you know? So it's like no sure shot thing, but just, I think people self-select. So is that something that you systematically put into the uh, the notice period? So between leaving their previous job and starting with you, are there steps that you put in place to ensure that they're already being inculcated into those uh, mission, vision and values? We just expose them to it. That's like, as I mentioned, just like more of a self-selection process. And then, of course, the gut feeling of the hiring manager or the HR department, then later on the, the manager who reviews these people. But yeah, there's no, aside from exposing them properly to it and telling them stories about how we make decisions, uh, I don't have another okay. silver bullet for this, unfortunately. Okay. And what, what about in the onboarding process? Do you mind talking me through the onboarding process? that you're teaching your managers to take people through when they're hiring for their teams? So in terms of onboarding process, we're very SOP driven and we have like a company portal where everything is basically documented and then people walk through this. For people who don't know, SOP means? Uh, Standard operating procedures. Okay. And so there are processes and systems that people need to go through. And so in terms of each component of that training, are you bringing that back to the values, mission, and vision? Not necessarily for the training, but we have a scorecard for everybody, how they're living up to each core value. This is also part of their review on how well they're doing and if they're eligible for a raise or or not, or if or if they may be fired. We also use the um, the people analyzer from, from Traction US, uh, from the book from Gina Wickman, Get a, Get a Grip on Your Business, um, Traction. 
where you basically you judge people on the core values if they you know you give a plus or minus or a plus minus and if they have too many minuses then they're out and also the GWC gets it once it has the capability of doing it so we create once they're in we grade people based on this and see if 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 they're a fit or if, if they're not fit you know because it's like you do yourself and everybody around people a disservice if you keep somebody on who's not an A player who doesn't really want it who doesn't really want to push it's like kind of you know it's like a sports team if you have like somebody you play the game, everybody's pushing, but the, the goalie's like on, on his phone and like, you know, gets the goals. Like you don't want to be in that team, you know? So I think it's like yeah. a, a players want to play with A players. And so we're just kind of weeding out people who are, who are who don't want to play that game. That's really interesting. So tell me this then, in terms of predictive hiring, I'm really curious about this. How do you assess for whether someone is an A player? beyond track record, because that can often be very deceptive. And uh, someone who performed well in one environment may not work, perform well in another. So I'm, I'm not hiring like staff. I'm just hiring managers. I mainly hire GMs or, or you know, so like business partners who I want to work with. And my criteria for this is how you do one thing is how you do everything. I just kind of really look at in my interactions with them, you know, how they do even small things, because like, this is always an indicator of how you do the rest. You know, if you're an asshole at home, you'll be an asshole at work. You know, if you cheat on your wife, you will have no problem cheating on, on your business partner as well. So like, this is like kind of like my, my filter for, for okay. people. Okay. So let, let's look at coaching itself then. What, what sort of cadence do you recommend that managers engage in uh, when it comes to coaching? I think a weekly one-on-one or a bi-weekly one-on-one makes a lot of sense. And we also follow the level 10 meeting style from, from the book Traction. If Audience, if you haven't read this book, please do yourself a favor and read it. It was an absolute game changer for my businesses and my life. If I would have had this earlier, I would not have this gray hair in my beard. <laughs> so I have um, added to the level 10 one-on-one style meeting that I have with people as, as three questions that I ask everybody. The first one is what goes really well right now. The second one is what drains you. And the third one is how do you grade your performance from zero to 10? Because, you know, when you ask these questions, then you can kind of excavate the, the stuff that's going wrong or right. You know, after, afterwards, it's the IDS section in this, in this meeting schedule, which is identify, discuss, solve. And with these three questions, you kind of figure out what is the stuff you really have to talk about with this person. And... In terms of the, the last one, how do you rate your performance from zero to 10? This is also a cool thing because I, don't, I, I think annual reviews are a joke. Quarterly reviews are, uh, you know, a semi-joke, but you need to give direct feedback if you really want to coach and change behavior in, in people. So, you know, when they give me their, how they feel about the performance, they're like, yeah, I'm doing, I think I'm doing a nine. Then I have the opportunity to like, I don't think so. I think it's more of a five because of X, Y, Z. And then we can have a healthy discussion about what's going on, you know, and also because it's like part of the standard agenda, it's not, they don't feel bad about this because it's like a permanent reoccurrence. A permanent, it's, it's a normal thing to check in. And it's also like written in this, in this list. It's not like me coming, you know, like drilling in or all of a sudden he asks like how I feel about my performance and they get nervous or whatever, you know, it kind of becomes a normal thing to talk about how you're doing, what's going wrong and what's going not, um, what's going right and what's going wrong. So it's like a, a normal open discussion that you have with people so you can coach them on what's where they're stuck. And let, let's look at group coaching then. Uh, how are the dynamics different between one-on-one versus group? 
I really like group coaching because you can have, you know, your time, you can impact more people at the, at the same time. I think nine people in a group is the maximum. More like if you have a one hour session, like otherwise you can't give people enough airtime. And what I really like about group coaching is the positive peer pressure, you know, especially with UpCoach, the system that we're, we're using or that we've built is um, you see, everybody sees everybody else's to-dos, everybody else's habits, everybody else's um, KPIs, et cetera, how, how they're doing. And you don't want to be the person who's like not performing, not doing their to-dos, not doing their homework. You don't want to be the one who's dropping the ball. And so this creates this, this healthy peer pressure. We also hire in pods with people so you know again we have this this camaraderie like you know there's a bunch of people who are the new guys and they kind of bond together and they also want to outperform the other person it sounds like you do hire for competitive uh nature but also collaborative yeah yeah i mean you want to be to some degree competitive you know because you want to i guess you want to grow you know like and you want to you know, if I'm going jogging, I want to go jogging with somebody who's a little better than me, so I can like, you know, he pushed me to to be to be better. You know, so I, I think it's 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 definitely a good thing. Even though I'm I'm not competitive in the sense that I have a bad day if I'm not winning. You know, I'm, I'm you know, but uh, I think it's it's definitely a healthy thing to have a healthy competition going on. I interviewed Joe Mullings, who runs a, a fabulous uh, recruitment business. And on average, his people bill three to five times more than uh, the average in their industry. And uh, one of the models that he uses is performance versus trust. I've seen Simon Sinek uh, talk about as well. And if you're hiring someone for a short-term contract, you might hire them for high performance and moderate or even low trust because they've just got to get a job done. But they may be a bit of an ass. And you don't want that in the team. So typically what he will do is he'll hire someone who is moderate on performance with the capability and willingness to grow, uh, but is very high on trust. And again, I think what you're describing in terms of the peer pressure, the pods, is that if people keep their word, and one of the things I do when I'm taking on a new client or whether I'm recruiting is... I put in place little agreements all the way. We are called upfront contracts. And if someone breaks an upfront contract, that's a red flag. If they break two in quick succession, that's pretty much it. So it's really important that people do keep their word, especially to themselves. So tell me this, when you are establishing a coaching relationship with someone, what are the contracts with themselves that you encourage the person being coached to develop? That's an inter interesting one. I think this makes a lot of sense to have, to make contracts with people. I'll, I'll, I'll implement this. I personally do not do not do any one-on-one -on -one coachings with people. I, I mentor a few businesses that I have invested in, but I'm not doing like standard coaching. I just do the group coaching thingy. And we also don't have any contracts. I mean, I tell people like, you, you, you should show up. It only works if you, you know, kind of, you get out of it what you put into it. But no, I'll definitely steal this from you and, and we'll, we'll do contracts as well. <laughs> but I'm thinking in terms of the, the emotional contract that one has with oneself. I, I firmly believe that the contract you have with yourself is the most important contract of the day. Not only do you turn up, but you show up. 
um, and uh, you practice with the intent of improving. You don't just go through the motions. When you're trying to learn a skill, perfect practice makes perfect. Practice doesn't. Because if you're just practicing, you're reinforcing your crappy behaviors more often than not. And you get really good at shanking the ball or uh, getting it <laughs> the water and sand. Okay. So what is group coaching? Because that sounds to me like it may be erring on the side of training. Uh, and I want to be clear about the distinction. I think training is more, you have like 50 people that watch a webinar type of thing. But coaching is like always you hold somebody accountable and you give somebody some one-on-one airtime, even though if it's in, in, a, in a group of, of eight or 10 people. You know, I think that's the, the biggest difference, that you're being held accountable. Training, it's just consume something and maybe do a test afterwards. But like coaching is like in the, you know, as, as I mentioned, like on a regular basis, checking in on behavior of people and giving them ideas on how they can correct something or giving some additional material like, hey, you know, it looks like you're stuck here. Maybe read, read this or watch this video. Okay, that's bad training, and um, that's broadcast training rather than training that's interactive. I guess exactly why you wouldn't want to see a lot of that. Um, okay, uh, let's spend a little bit of time with your entrepreneur's hat on. You've been involved in a number of businesses. First of all, how do you define which business you're going to pursue? Because presumably... You're somebody who comes up with ideas all the time. How do you discipline yourself and constrain yourself to focus on the one thing? Mission, vision, values is, is a big one to like kind of do things that are in line with, with my mission and vision. I heard Jack Ma give a talk and he said, every day a bunch of people from my team come with very smart ideas on what we could implement in the business. And I always say, okay, let me run this through my filter, which is the, his, his vision, which is make doing business easier anywhere, I think. And then, you know, if this kind of, um, passes this filter, then he considers it. And if not, he just says, go away, you know, because like ideas are fast, you know, but um, ex executing something good needs needs focus and time. So uh, I think that's the, the biggest thing for me to select stuff out. And um, with after reading Conscious Capital, I had the idea of wanting to have having 10,000 employees because I want to give a lot of people great place to work with, um, you know, good culture and just fun. And You know, after seeing that, you know, if you have a business and you run it in this conscious capitalism way, it can have a positive impact in the world. So this one filter and then, you know, the other one, I mentioned my, my personal mission before, things that are in line with this, kind of helping people to be on their, their A game to reach their full potential. This is something that just excites me because it just makes me happy to see people grow. It's like very selfish, just like, you know, stuff that makes me happy. Interestingly enough, I think, If you're going to lead, then you do have to look after your, yourself because if you're not taking care of yourself and you're not aligned with your values, then it's very easy to get derailed, distracted, or do the wrong thing. My next question then is how do you select your leadership teams? As I mentioned before, how you do one thing is how you do everything. You know? And for me, it's probably the best filter to see how people are ticking. You know? Also, I. I met my wife in school. Uh, we're together for over 20 years now. And I'm very grateful for this because like, you know, if meet somebody on a dating app, I think it's like, or in, in a bar is so hard because if, if you want to, you know, if you would just want to have fun, it's a different thing. But if you want to have a real long-term relationship, you see how this person 
reacts in stressful situations and just like kind of you see the whole picture and then you can kind of judge if you want this person if you if this person is trustworthy enough to be in a leadership position or to to be a partner you know once we had a um it's a crazy story <laughs> we had a the perfect cto that we want to hire for at, at maxidian it was like it was perfect like his background and everything was just like 100% perfect. And we almost signed the papers and we just said, okay, come, let's hang out at my business partner's house for a weekend. And, um, you know, then, then we're going to sign it and celebrate and blah. And he shows up to the door with a woman. We thought it's his wife. It's like, oh, no, no, that's my mistress. And we were like, <laughs> mind blown, you know? And because we had like before, uh, on top of it, we had a business partner who got into a nasty divorce because he started a relationship with his wife's best friend, you know? So it was like, kind of like, it was like the biggest red flag ever. We're like, Okay, dude, but sorry, man, doesn't work. You know? So, yeah, that's like. So, how many of the leaders within the businesses that you have developed have been homegrown rather than brought in from outside? A lot of them have also been. A lot of them we, we bring from, in from the outside, but then they usually kind of grow up within the organization. You know, so it's kind of kind of kind of a mix of both. We. Do you bring them in at middle management level and then yes. grow them right? Yes, correct, correct. Because it, it sounds like there's there's quite a bit of a courtship before you put them into a, a critical position. And mm -hmm. I also made the mistake of like hiring uh, a friend and not super close friend, but I thought it would be good. But I kind of looked past a few things in terms of how you do one thing, how you do everything, and it just didn't work. You know, it cost me a lot of money, but you know, you, you live and learn. Not not everything works. <laughs> Talk to me about the teething troubles of moving from a startup to a scale-up? I think at some point I want to write a, uh, start a blog. It's called Problem 25, which is like after you have 25 employees, the problems that, that start there because, you know, internal communications, et cetera, it's like everything becomes harder before you just like huddle together in a small group, but then it just kind of becomes, you know, different departments and stuff like this. So I think the, the, the easiest remedy for these teething problems is the book traction. If you just like follow this EOS entrepreneurial operating system and you implement a proper meeting structure, um, your mission, vision, values, people analyze, et cetera, everything that's in this book is, is a real godsend. So Gino, thank you very much for giving this book to the world. You know, it's like, I wish I would have had this earlier. All the stuff that's in there, we kind of came up with by ourselves with a lot of blood, sweat and tears. And not as perfect as he describes it in his book. And then when I found this book, I was like, holy cow, you know, like that's, that's, that's unbelievable. So, well, there, there's nothing like learning from other people, scar tissue. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you've you got these error logs and you uh, al almost celebrate failure for the value that it can bring in terms of lessons. For somebody to be able to adapt to a rapidly scaling business, they have to be comfortable with change. How do you make sure that you're assessing people for that? Because the business that you start on the 1st of January, by the middle of March is already different. And by different July, it's massively different. And by 1st of January the next year, it's a completely different company. So when you're growing at scale, how do you make sure that you recruit people who are going to adapt well as I mentioned before, the the guerrilla fighters, military, uh, infantry, and uh, and police. You know, you don't hire any policemen. 
don't hire people that come from large organizations that are used to this corporate bullshit, this big structures, you know, that's like, no, this is not my job description. I'm not going to do this. You know, like, like just staying away from, from people like this. People are more agile. People are willing to grow. I also always ask people who, um, when I hire them, what are the three books that had the biggest impact in your life? Because I, A, I want good book recommendations and B, I want, uh, and what is the last book that you've read? And if they can't really answer this, then I know that they're not in a growth mindset. They don't want to improve. They don't want to grow. So it's like also a good selective question to how to self-select people out. You know, if they're not in a growth mindset, they will not thrive in a startup. You know, they will be just stressed by the constant change. Okay. And you've mentioned accountability a number of times. And I, I think a lot of people misunderstand what accountability is. What is it? One of our core values in all the businesses is own it. We build trust through total accountability. You know, so it's just kind of, if I say I'm taking this on, then I'm taking this on. You know, and if I'm, don't drop the ball, A players don't drop the ball. You can deliberately put the ball on the floor saying I'm not doing this and communicating this. But, you know, once you take something, you own it, you're just going to going to own it having this core value is also a great management tool because if somebody drops the ball and you can say like hey man you know what's going on with this and then they don't fight you or kind of have evasive blah you just you can tell them like hey man own it what's up with this core value is written here on the wall and then the discussion kind of dies fast and people get that they have to that this is the culture that we have so again and i agree with you accountability is something you do to yourself and uh, other people can hold you to account, but you are accountable in the same way that motivation is an internal force. You cannot motivate anyone to do anything. So if you're recruiting, you recruit people for their motivation. You recruit people for their willingness to be accountable and to take ownership. My friend Amy Woodall talks about owning your 50. You have to own your 50% of every shitty situation you find yourself in uh, <laughs> or every bad relationship. And part of the problem, I think, is ego. Ryan Holiday's uh, fabulous trilogy, Ego is the Enemy, The Obstacle is the Way, and Silent, uh, Stillness is the Key. It starts with ego because where one has an ego that gets easily pricked, you tend to be very brittle. And this ties very closely to what the Buddha says, which is that um, attachment is the root to all misery. So I think where people are attached to their ideas or attached to being perceived in a particular way, then you find that it, those people are likely to be a cause of contention uh, within your business. So how do you nurture someone from, maybe they've come from a background where failure is viewed as a personality defect or where they have to cover their ass in order to stay safe. How do you make sure that they understand that the environment that you're operating in is tough but fair and they're not going to get punished for making those mistakes? How do you make sure they understand that right from the get-go? As I mentioned before, like telling these core value stories, you know, kind of describing how people were living up to our, our values. And also, I think culture equals good trust if there's a high amount of trust in your organization you have a good culture i think this is kind of what it boils down that you know the organization has the best interest of employees and, and, and staff and, and and team at, at heart you know i think this is kind of what it boils down to and people feel this you know you even i think if you were at a more hostile environment before 
when you come into this this environment, you kind of feel us of on on what's going on and see how how we how we treat people. And one thing that we work with a lot of people in the Philippines, and we just add a new core value, which is initiative, because often we have not seen a lot of initiative from them. Because like I think because they're scared, you know, to to do something wrong, just like they execute what you tell them, but they don't show initiative. And so we made this one of our core values, and now we celebrate every time when somebody shows initiative, so everybody else sees, you know, that. This is something that we want. You know, I always tell people just like, I want you to push and I, I hold you back when you when you go too far. You know, I don't want you, I, I can't be the one who's pushing you. And, you know, I've never had somebody who went too far that I have to reel back in. You know, so this kind of sums up like really sh- just showing and living this good culture and people feel if they're in a safe environment or not. So do those core values stories also include where people have made mistakes? Yeah, of course. You know, also like with, with the error log, you know, that's like, it's totally cool. And you see that other people that are already in the team, when you come new to the team, they share their, okay, I fucked up here. I did this, I did that. You know, how can we fix that? You know, and then it's, you know, becomes like more of a, a problem solving solution. You know, also people should not come with like, this is bad. You know, should always come with like, okay, this is bad, but we could do X or X, A or B, you know? So you kind of always have like, you have a solution oriented mindset. You know, when you point something something out that that's not going right, or you criticize criticize somebody, give solutions, not just criticize. Okay, so as part of the coaching, it's important that you're offering solutions as well. Do you ask them so that they come up with the solution, or yes. do you tell them? I, I mean, if they're stuck, then I, then I then I help them. But ideally, it should should come from them. You know, every every time, I think the best thing I like to subconsciously. Imp- implement ideas into people that they come to me and say like I have this amazing idea I want to XYZ and this is exactly what I actually want them to do so they're like even more buy-in because I think it's their idea right okay so tell me this as the business grows you get beyond that 25 the communication lines start to get a little bit hazy what are the symptoms that look for so that you can get ahead of them just like if the error log grows with communication with with issues that are based on missed communication, that's probably the easiest easiest way to see right. this. Okay, because uh, w- one of the things that I'm conscious of is that many entrepreneurs set businesses up without the vision, mission, and values, but then they fail to plan for the business that they want to become. So they haven't designed the positions and the roles that they're going to need in six months, a year, two years from now. They haven't got a roadmap or a career path for their people that so that they can grow into those positions. They haven't got processes. They measure lag indicators uh, rather than leading indicators. Mm-hmm. How much of the time, once you've decided on a particular business, do you spend in planning? I mean, we definitely do a 90-day plan with the team, you know, every... 90 days we get together and we plan out what we want to do in the next quarter. And this is always coming from the department heads that everybody does like a presentation on what are the things that they would like to see in their department to to change over the next 90 days. And then we collectively decide, I first check it with, you know, I kind of overlook it so not, no, like nothing crazy is in there. And then we collectively as a team decide on what we want to do. And, you know, then for example, career path was something, one thing that we implemented at Task Drive lately that 
there's like a, a clear career path on how and what people have to do to kind of get into the next one from junior researcher to researcher to senior researcher. And then that they can jump in between the tracks. They can also become a QA or an SDR, et cetera. So they have the kind of options and, and room to grow. So is that something that you do right at the outset when they come on board or is that something? No, this is like something that once it becomes an issue, you know, you can't solve everything right. at the start. You kind of have to kind of pick your battles and kind of focus on what's the important thing right now in the stage. For example, at UpCoach right now, the most important thing for me is activation. People are coming in. I want to make sure that they have the best possible onboarding. And I'm on a lot of onboarding calls and like the whole team is like on onboarding calls, even though this doesn't really scale, but we want to learn from people to see like, you know, what, what do they need to, that we have the highest activation rate from people that sign up. And learning from them, kind of what features are you know are missing, and kind of what should we do differently. It's like kind of like research. So you know, we also we're not doing any marketing right now because we want to get this right first. And then at at Maxim, we did the mistake of just kind of really pushing hard for the marketing aspect. And you know, kind of like if you onboard too many people while certain systems are not set up right, the wheels may come off the bus, and it's kind of a slippery slope. So this time, I want to kind of really build it solid walk a little slower and then you know hit the pedal to the metal in terms of sales and marketing a little later that makes sense so what sort of percentage growth rates have you been able to achieve in your previous businesses 100 percent year over year in the early years is is very easy to achieve 150 percent as well the larger you get you know it gets gets harder with the with the bigger numbers and when you're growing at that scale how do you make sure the wheels don't come off because SOPs like systems and and processes and um, just set things up properly, you know, kind of think it through. And we have a lot of templates from, from, from doing this for a while. And yeah, I think that's, you know, big thing. Also traction again, coming back to traction, implement what this book tells you and this will already secure two or three of the wheels, you know, so you can (laughs) grow. Excellent. Okay, so I'm going to ask you about books. So uh, clearly Traction is one of the books that you'd recommend. What what Mm -hmm. else would you recommend? The books that had personally the biggest impact in my life is one, The Four Agreements. Ruiz is his last name. It's a book about the agreements that you make with yourself. The book starts with a, a mother that's coming home, had a bad day at work, has a crazy migraine. The kid is jumping on the bed and singing and this makes her head explode and she loses her cool and yells at the kid, stop singing. Nobody wants to hear you sing. You have a terrible voice and stop jumping on the bed. And the kid makes this agreement with herself that she has a bad voice and she will never speak up, never sing again, etc. You know, sometimes you just like, because some external force or it makes you believe that you're bad at math or you can't do this, etc. kind of holding you back. So you kind of figure out what kind of self-limiting beliefs do you hold in yourself? And the other thing is what kind of, a, if do you have conflicting agreements? Like I want to be the best dad in the world and I want to be the best or best entrepreneur, like probably doesn't fly or I want to have a happy marriage and I want to have sex with every attractive woman I meet. Like you pick one, otherwise you'll always have this crosstalk in your mind. You will, you will, you will be not focused. And a lot of other things, it's, it's really an amazing book to get clarity in, 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 your, in your head. Then Outwitting the Devil by Napoleon Hill. It's, yeah. uh, it really blew me away. I read that a couple of weeks ago. Very good. Yeah, it's like, you know, the he interviews the devil, asking the devil, what does the devil do to hold us back and what kind of tools the devil has to make us not reach our goals. And the biggest tool is fear, you know, fear of not asking for this promotion, not closing this customer, not starting the business, etc. And yeah, this was like a, a really big one for me. 
And yeah, I mean, I, I consume probably like three books a month, so I can talk about books for, for a long time. But I think we had three already. Excellent. What, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? At the moment, I'm wrestling with integrating family properly into the busy time right now because we just launched UpCoach, like, you know, launching a business, being more hands-on day-to-day. Usually I work on the business, not, not in the business, but currently I work in the business as well. So this is kind of putting a strain on my time and not spending enough quality time with my wife and my daughter. How are you blocking your calendar so that you're making that time? My calendar is like, everything is, is time blocked for me. You know, so I have like my family time from five to eight where I just spend, spend time with the family. And so like, yeah, yeah every, everything's blocked like Fridays and now also Wednesdays and Fridays is like time for, for my wife. Before it was only Friday, even Friday nights, because I live in Turkey, so and I have a lot of friends and clients in uh, in the US, so it's always late night calls. And my wife has been have been complaining, so I I added Wednesday as as a block day as well. So is the problem that your attention is elsewhere whilst you may be physically present? Yes, that's definitely one. But it's it's actually right now it's like just an insane amount of work, lots of calls. So it's like actually not physically. You know, my, my wife hates the word words i have a call you know and she's like can we do this no i can't i have a call you know so it's like the also being now at home i had an office here in bodrum which we gave up because i realized with covid how much time i spent traveling driving to the office driving to the gym driving to restaurants so I just brought brought everything to the house which saves me a lot of time but I just end up just working all the time so it's yeah i found that it's really difficult to let go now that i'm working from home because we've given up our office as well and whilst I'm seeing them fractionally more than I did, um, I'm working even more steeply. Oh. Okay, so maybe we can battle that, that one together. If you had a golden ticket and you could whisper in the ear of your idiot 23-year-old self, what would you tell David? It doesn't have to be about regrets, but what choice bit of advice would you give him? One is to be more conscious, spending time with your with your loved ones. I lost my dad when he was, I was twelve, and my mom passed away seven years ago. So, just like spending more time time with family would would probably be one. And just kind of you know, kind of with the struggle right now, just like be more mindful because I'm like very focused on work. If when I started MaxIDN, I moved to the US, I was alone there, and I basically worked fourteen hours a day, seven days a week, without without blinking. It's like you know, this is kind of my my default mo. But, you know, not forgetting the other parts of, of life. And the biggest thing for me is, I think we talked about this before. I used to be very introverted. Kind of being on a conference call made me uncomfortable. I would have never gone on a, on a podcast, you know, kind of like, and this was holding me back as an entrepreneur. And I realized, especially after moving to the US, how much this was holding me back because people that were a little more extroverted. So I did Toastmasters twice a week and I did. I went to two networking events per week to just kind of overcome this fear. And at some point I was, I was over it. It didn't bother me anymore. But uh, the real switch in my head came when my yoga teacher said, every decision in life, you either make it out of love or out of fear. You know, so when I'm, I'm selling something, you know, I used to hate sales with a passion as well. I, I you know, always felt like a used car salesman. But now understanding this, this difference between love and fear, if I know that this product is something really good that's going to help you in your, in your life and your business, I can even be pushy, say, Marcus, freaking buy this. It's going to be good for you. Please do yourself a favor, buy this. And I will not feel bad about this because I know I'm, I'm doing you a favor with this. 
versus, you know, then I'm acting out of love and I'm setting out of love and you will feel this and you're more likely buying it versus if I act out of fear and I think only about the numbers that I have to hit or the the mortgage that I have to pay, then I can't, I can't sell anything, you know? So I think, and also with, with public speaking, kind of being on stage, I always thought I would have never gone on stage, but, uh, you know, now being up there, if I'm full of fear, then I think, do people think I have a weird German accent? Do people think I look weird? Do people think what I'm saying is stupid? Do people think I'm an idiot, et cetera? And then I can't give a presentation. But if I make it about the other person thinking about like, okay, what I have to say, I can potentially help them in their life or in their business, then I can give a, give a great presentation. So there's lot, lots of areas. Or my wife always asks me to do stuff around the house. Like, you know, kind of, can you put this furniture piece together or could you hang up this picture? And I hate this type of work with a passion. I prefer to do my taxes over stuff, something like this. <laughs> and uh, so, and I always did out of fear because I didn't want to have conflict with her. But now realizing this love and fear thing, I still start out of fear because I still don't like it. But then I do it with love because I want to make my wife happy and I want to make our place nicer. And all of a sudden it flows and I, I enjoy the process and the result is much better. Because before when I did it out of fear, the result was not good. And then I had to fight with her afterwards because it wasn't up to her spec. You know, so it's kind of like in every area of my life, it's my, it's my mantra, kind of everything. Um, also with my employees, I'm seeing like, are they doing this task out of love or out of fear? Again, kind of coming back to coaching. When we grew past 25 at Max CDN, we had this problem of internal communication. And I asked my assistant to do an internal newsletter, go to each department head, write something up, what they're doing this week, what they plan doing next week, and send it out every Monday at 4 p.m. It has to go out. And every time she gave me the draft, I had a million things to correct. So I set it down in my office, said, hey, Dee, you're doing this out of fear and not love. And she looked at me like, what the heck do you want from me? And I explained, if you do this out of love, you'd really figure out what every department head has to say, even what a CTO has to say, because she was not very technical. And you'd write this newsletter in a way that everybody gets the most benefit information and you know even enjoys reading it and looking forward to the next one. Then you do it out of love, but you're doing it out of fear because the only motivation of you doing it is because David said this thing has to go out at 4 p.m. And afterwards, these newsletters became phenomenal. Like they became really, really good. You know, she added integrated jokes into it. She quizzes, blah, whatever. And at the end, we even had a video newsletter, you know, so it's uh, really came a long way. So it's like kind of the, also if somebody gives you some, some, let's say an Excel sheet back and one column should be dollar and it's not formatted with dollar, I kind of give it back because I know they didn't do it with love, you know, because they're doing it kind of rush, rush out of, out of, out of fear, just getting, getting it done. Well, again, the analogy works well in sales. If you're, if you're turning up to make a sale and do a transaction, then that's problematic because the other person reflects back what you project out. When you're prospecting, if you're prospecting, try and get uh, your dial uh, quotient in and uh, you're uh, just doing it uh, to get the meeting. I interviewed Chris Dannon, who was Zig Ziglar's bag carrier for 35 years. And uh, Chris says that when he prospects, he's prospecting for business five years down the road. When I teach my clients to go and sell, there are two questions that they must be able to answer with a yes. Can I help? If I can, am I the best person to help? If the answer to either of those is no, then you have to disqualify yourself out of the sale. And you turn up with a service mentality. And service doesn't mean servitude. Service means that you're doing something for others. And as a social primate species, we derive enormous satisfaction from helping yes. other people to get our needs met. And it's Emerson's law of compensation. To get more, give more. If you help enough other people get their needs met. Money is a side effect of providing value. Absolutely. Money is irrelevant. I had one of the most dissatisfying 
sales conversations I think I've ever had. Someone prospected me and uh, proceeded to correct me and then try and convince me. And that doesn't work. What you need to do is you need to validate people and then fascinate them. And the problem is that if your intent is to try and put your hand in someone's pocket, they will resist and they'll put walls of resistance up. So how can people get a hold of you? You can find me on LinkedIn and, and Facebook and uh, you know Instagram as well, but I don't check it that often. I have a website, davidhensel.com, where you can also see my portfolio companies and you can always reach me at dh at davidhensel.com. Happy to connect, happy to help if I can help somehow. Wonderful. David Hensel, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for having me. This is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you'd like to get in touch with either David or myself, then please contact us. My email is marcuskauke at me.com or marcus at laughs, L-A-U-G-H-S hyphen last, L-A-S-T dot com. Marcus at laughs hyphen last dot com. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.